All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, before we get into the message, uh, I wanted to give two quick announcements. Uh, one, our Yukon students are not with us today because they have their fall retreat. Uh, so you can pray that they're having a good experience there and uh, that they come, come back from that uh, energized for the rest of the school semester. Um, and secondly, some of you may remember that last Christmas we participated in a ministry called Angel Tree, uh, where we purchased uh, gifts for kids who have incarcerated parents to give on behalf of their incarcerated parents. And then we had teams that went out and delivered those uh, to the families in person. And uh, I thought that was, that was a great ministry. I really enjoyed uh, being a part of it and seemed like a lot of you guys did too. And so we're planning on doing that again this year. Uh, so that if, if that's something you're interested in participating in, either purchasing gifts, uh, wrapping gifts, delivering the gifts, uh, reaching out to the families in advance, um, making contact with them, it's, it is kind of a big job, but it is a fulfilling one. So if that's something that you want to be a part of, you can write that on your connection card. When you come up for communion, place the, uh, the cards in the basket. Just let me know, because I'd like to start putting a team together early this year so it doesn't just suddenly sneak up on us and we have to do it really fast. Um, so, well, we are continuing in our series on the Apostles' Creed today. All this fall, we are taking this creed line by line and we are asking, what does it mean to confess these things together? Uh, this is a, an ancient creed, one of the earliest expressions of the core beliefs of the Christian faith. It's been handed down to us for centuries and so uh, we want to take it very seriously and learn from it together. So you guys know the, the drill. If you've been here for a while, I'd like to start by inviting you, if you are able, to stand. And let's together confess uh, this creed that has been handed down to us since the apostles. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You can be seated. Good job. Again, I encourage you, if you haven't memorized it yet, to keep trying to do that so that by the end of the series you can say it without even looking. That's what I'm going to try to do too. So this week, we are looking at the next line. It's still in the section where we're confessing what we believe about Jesus. The line is, he suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now, last week, we confessed Jesus's birth, right? And now we're skipping right to confessing his death. So you might be thinking, well, hey, didn't we miss a bunch of stuff in, in between? And we did, um, and it's not that that stuff doesn't matter. Jesus' life and ministry and example are very important, and thankfully the Gospels fill in those details for us. Uh, but the creed is trying to be very concise. And when the creed was put together, 
uh, people will speculate that part of the reason that the things that he emphasized were emphasized is because they were things that were under attack to some extent. Uh, you know, there were some people who might have been arguing, well, Jesus didn't really die, right? And so it was important to have a line in there that said very clearly, no, Jesus died. Jesus was crucified. Um, it was important to have lines in there about the virgin birth, because the virgin birth might have been being attacked at the time, right? Um, but regardless of whether these particular ideas uh, were being attacked at the time, they are a very concise expression of the core elements of our faith, right? So it's not that the life and ministry of Jesus doesn't matter, but there is something extremely important about his death, and also very important about what's expressed when we talk about his birth, because that's emphasizing his identity, right? That he is fully human and fully divine. So the creed, rather focusing on the acts of Jesus, is focusing primarily on like the person of Jesus, his identity, um, and those, those core moments, uh, the resurrection and the crucifixion and the birth. Um, so, so far, in regard to Jesus, we have confessed that he is Christ, that he is God's only son, that he is Lord, that he was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, meaning fully divine and fully human. And now... Uh, we are confessing that this person, this perfect unity of humanity in divinity, this person who is the almighty in human flesh, suffered, died, was crucified, and was buried. Now, we live in a time and a place that has been very shaped by the story of Jesus. And so it is easy for us to miss how crazy it would have sounded to some people that the Lord, the one that we worship, was crucified. The Apostle Paul once wrote, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, 22-25, Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but... To those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Right? So Paul is admitting here, this message that we are preaching for both Jews and Greeks, meaning the people in the Roman Empire who are not Jewish, so basically Jews and Gentiles, for everybody... It's a hard pill to swallow. He says it's a stumbling block to Jews. And what that means is when they come across this idea, it's like their minds trip over it. Right? And what happens when you trip over something? You, you fall and you look back and you're like, that's not supposed to be there. What's that doing there? So they felt about the crucifixion, this idea that the Messiah would be crucified and die, that that's something that would happen to their Lord. It's a stumbling block. That's not supposed to be there. Because they could not conceive of how someone who was truly on God's side would have that happen to them. Something so humiliating, something so awful. And, and then for the Greeks, the Gentiles, the idea of worshiping a crucified Lord seemed like foolishness. Because after all, it was their government that did the crucifying, right? So 
if you have a choice between regarding someone who is crucified as Lord or regarding the person that has the power to crucify them as Lord, they think, well, this is a no-brainer, right? Who's got the power? Who's really in charge? It's foolishness to follow a crucified Lord. Side with the crucifier. Both Jews and Greeks wanted what people in general want, right? Which is power, a sense of control. And a suffering, crucified Lord wasn't what they were looking for. They didn't want a God who got beat up. They wanted a God who would beat everyone else up for them, right? And so the idea of Christ crucified was considered foolish, weak, a stumbling block. But, right, as Paul says, for those who are being saved, it is the power of God and the wisdom of God because the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Now, why is that? Well, the reason is because we human beings tend to have a messed up idea of what real power and real wisdom looks like. According to God, in God's eyes, real power is the ability to serve one another in love. That's what Jesus reveals to us. Real power is the ability to serve one another in love. And real wisdom is the ability to recognize that that's what real power looks like. It looks like love. And that is part of what we confess in this part of the creed. Right? On the cross, Jesus gives himself in love for the salvation of the world. Now, that kind of self-giving seems like foolishness to those who think that the point of life is just to try and get as much pleasure as you can and avoid as much pain as possible. And that kind of self-giving love feels like weakness to those who think that real power is just the ability to manipulate others and control things and assert your will and dominance. Right? But that self-giving, that love, that is what real wisdom and real power looks like. That's what we're confessing when we say that our Lord, the Almighty One made flesh, suffered and died. We're saying we have a different idea of what real wisdom and power looks like. All right, let's talk about the details of this line. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. What do we make of this emphasis on Pontius Pilate? You know, the creed doesn't have a lot of names in it. Jesus Christ, God the Father, Holy Spirit, Virgin Mary, and then there's this guy. You know, why, why is he so important? Pontius, Pontius Pilate. Uh, well, most of you probably know uh, that in Jesus' lifetime, the Roman Empire was divided up into provinces, kind of like the way the United States is divided into states. And each province had a different governor who would, was accountable to the Caesar, to the emperor. And Pontius Pilate was one of those governors. He was the governor over the province of Judea, which was you know, where many Jews lived. And uh, one day, the day that we now call Good Friday, some of the religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, took Jesus to Pontius Pilate and said, we want you to crucify him. And 
the reason they did that is because they were trying to follow protocol because they, as Jews, did not have the authority to execute anybody in the Roman Empire, but Pontius Pilate, as the governor, did have the authority, you know? So they're following the rules, doing the, quote, right thing. We've got this guy who broke our rules. We need you to execute him for us. And, of course, eventually Pontius Pilate complies. Jesus is sent away to be crucified, and that's why we say that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Now, one reason that detail is valuable is because it reminds us that this is real history, right? It's not a myth. It's not a fable. It's Pontius Pilate is a real guy. Historians recognize this person. I, I checked. You can even go to the Wikipedia page today for Judea, and it's got this list of 29 governors of the province of Judea over like 130 years of time, and there's Pontius Pilate right there is number five. I think he's after Valeria and before Marcellus. So, you know, a detail like that anchors this story in history, and that's valuable. But I think it's valuable for another reason, too. Pontius Pilate, he represents worldly power. He's an authority, like so many others throughout history, who we might say holds the power of life and death in his hand. Um, at one point, he says to Jesus, before he sends Jesus away to be crucified, don't you realize I have the power either to free you or to crucify you? Don't you realize I have the power? Throughout history, there have always been certain people that have that kind of power. The power to control, right? The, the power to say, you are sentenced to death. The power to say, you're, you're a slave. The power to say, you have to go live in that ghetto. The power to say, you have to go work in that concentration camp. And throughout history, there are countless people who have suffered under the abuse of that kind of power. Hitler, Stalin, Putin, Mussolini, Kim Jong-un. I was watching a documentary about Kim Jong-un in North Korea a little while ago. Did you know that that country, it's so isolated and so controlled by the government that people there come to really think that Kim Jong-un can hear what they think. That that is how much power and control he has. That if they think, if I so much as think something that's out of line, I might get arrested or imprisoned or executed. These people suffer under the authority of Kim Jong-un. And throughout history, many, many people have suffered under the authority of unjust powers and the abuse of authority, right? And when we say that Jesus Christ suffered under Pontius Pilate, we should feel like we're saying Jesus identifies with those people. Jesus stands with those people who have suffered under that injustice. 
You know, I have to imagine that when the early church confessed, we believe in Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, that was very relevant for them because they were suffering under the authorities often. At the time, uh, Emperor Nero, Emperor Domitian, these were emperors that led persecutions against Christians. And there were times where the persecution flared up. And if you were a Christian, you didn't know if you were going to get thrown to the lions or not. Or, you know, end up getting your, your head cut off. And so, when they said, I believe in Jesus who suffered under Pontius Pilate, it would have been like a reminder to stay the course. Right? Because as you stay the course, you are following in the Lord's footsteps. Now, I think Pontius Pilate is an interesting case because he's not a worldly leader like, like Hitler or Mussolini or Kim Jong-un. Uh, he's not that extreme, but he still represents worldly authority gone wrong. Uh, he's a kind of a passive Authority. You might remember that in the Gospels, he doesn't, really, he doesn't want to send Jesus to be crucified. He says, I can't find any fault with this guy. But eventually he gives in, and, and here's why. Because the crowd is upset, and the crowd is calling for Jesus to be killed. Now, Pilate knows that he is supposed to maintain order in this province, and so he is worried that if the crowd gets too excited and they riot, that word is going to get to the Caesar that he's not keeping order in his province, and then he might lose his job, right? He might get in trouble. And so even though Pilate's not really interested in crucifying Jesus, he gives in to the crowd. He acquiesces. He gives them what they want so he can keep his job, and keep the peace. We might say, Pilate is not really that concerned about justice or what's right and wrong or what's true. There's this moment where Jesus says, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And Pilate goes, what is truth? Which I think when we hear him say that, the spirit of what he's saying is, you know, what even is justice? What is right and wrong? There is no truth. There is no justice. justice. There's no right and wrong. There's just power. And there's just keeping things under control, right? And so that's his mindset. He's not really thinking about those higher order principles. And, you know, there is always a temptation for those in authority to just appease the crowd and say and do whatever needs to be done to maintain the status quo, to keep power. There's always a temptation to say, what even is truth? What even is justice? I can't be bothered with that. I've got an election to win. That's a very dangerous attitude. And when people have it, it inevitably leads to suffering. At some point, someone who doesn't deserve it ends up on the chopping block. And we just, people just turn the other way. 
And Jesus, the life of Jesus, exposes that reality of the brokenness in our world, right? Because in Jesus, we see this sinless man who is sent to die because of the madness of the crowd and a political leader who cares more about appeasing them than about truth. Okay, let's talk about suffering. He suffered. Jesus suffered. God in the flesh suffered. Do we realize the significance of that one? One of the most common objections that people have to faith in God is the amount of suffering in the world. And there is a lot, right? Um, people will ask, if there is a loving, good God, why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is there so much evil in the world? The, the term for this is the problem of evil, right? In this world where children sometimes die of cancer and where hurricanes and earthquakes can strike without warning and ruin entire communities, how can we believe that there's actually a good God? Now, it's a tough problem. I don't want to act like you can just wave that problem away. I do think it's important to recognize that the writers of the Bible were not oblivious to this problem. The same kinds of questions that atheists ask, you will find them in the pages of the Bible if you're looking hard enough. I mean, the whole book of Job is basically about this question, about this problem. So when people today, you know, come after the faith and say, well, how could you be so ridiculous to believe that? It's like, well, hello, you're not asking anything new. Faith has existed alongside this question for a very long time. But it is, it is a tough question. And I think some answers to the question are better than others, but none of them are entirely perfect. But the best response to that question of the problem of suffering, I think, is what we confess in this line in the creed. We believe in Jesus who suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. Now that doesn't answer the question of why God allows so much suffering, but it shows us that God is not unaffected by the suffering. In Jesus, he subjects himself to the suffering. God does not exempt himself from the pain. I think one of the reasons why the problem of suffering is so troubling for people why it's a hindrance to people's faith is because when many people think of God, they imagine this, per, this, this being that is far and distant and passive, right? Far removed from the pain of the world. Never bearing any pain, only inflicting pain. People will think of God like, like a dictator who sends soldiers into a brutal war but would never go to the battlefield himself. Or like a sports team manager who judges the performance of the team but would never get down there and throw the ball around. Right? But when we confess this part of the creed, we're saying, well, that's not the kind of God that I believe in. I don't believe in a God who is just a distant, passive observer to the suffering of the world. I believe in a God who took on flesh in the person of Jesus and felt the sting of suffering and death. 
So we might struggle to explain why God allows as much suffering as he does. But through Jesus, we have a reason to trust that God has good reasons for allowing the sorrows because through Jesus, we know he doesn't just allow them. He bears the sorrows. The prophet Isaiah, he wrote, looking forward to Jesus' sacrifice, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. It's an amazing passage. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. God doesn't just allow our suffering. Through Jesus, he bears our suffering. Through Jesus, he is on the battlefield. Through Jesus, he is in the game. He is not distant. Right? The suffering of Jesus shows that God is with us in our pain. And I don't want to jump ahead in the creed, but as you probably already know, the story does not end with suffering and death. Right? The gospel is not only that God is with us in our pain, but that our pain can be transformed into life. He suffered, was crucified, died, and buried. Suffered, was crucified, died, and buried. Now, I don't think that I need to go into detail about the horrors of crucifixion. I, I don't think it takes much imagination for us to know that that would be a horrible way to die. But what we sometimes miss is not only was it a physically horrible thing, but there was this humiliation associated with it. It was considered to be the death of a criminal, and people who were crucified were thought of as cursed by God. You know, there's a, an interesting line in this passage in Isaiah 53 that says, We considered him cursed by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. Well, notice the line doesn't say that God actually cursed Jesus. It says we considered him cursed. Some people read it as that, you know, God was cursing Jesus, but what it actually says is we considered him cursed by God. And that's clear that many people did, right? That's why the cross was seen as foolishness. Because why would you worship someone that God allowed that to happen to? Clearly, they couldn't really be on God's side. Did you know that to this day, uh, Muslims don't believe that Jesus died on the cross? They, uh, they, they, they believe that Jesus was a prophet. They don't think that our Gospels are accurate, of course. But, so they'll say Jesus was a prophet... But they cannot bear the idea that a prophet of God would be crucified. So what they say is that it looked like Jesus was on the cross, but it was just his body, and his soul already went up to heaven, and his soul was replaced with somebody else's soul who actually deserved to be crucified. 
I promise this is true. You can, you can look it up. And what they actually say is that it was probably Judas who was in the body of Jesus. Right? Why, why, why do they say that? I mean, there's nothing in the gospel accounts to suggest anything like that. Right? Well, they say it because the cross feels like foolishness. Right? Because if somebody dies that way, they must be cursed by God. Surely they are cursed by him, stricken by him, and afflicted. It's one of the reasons why many Jews in the, you know, didn't convert, didn't, didn't see Jesus as the Messiah. Because the crucifixion was the symbol of shame. But to those of us who are able to see the cross for what it really is, it is the power of God. It is the wisdom of God. Right? To those of us who believe it is a revelation of the depth of God's love, a revelation that he is with us in our suffering, a revelation that he will never leave or forsake those who trust in him. He suffered, crucified, died, and was buried. Died, that one's easy, right? It's emphasizing he really died. He didn't swoon. He didn't faint. He didn't come off off the cross and someone gave him some CPR and he revived, resuscitated. No. He died. And then the last word, buried, right? That emphasizes that again. It was a full death. Um, but there's another reason why that detail is included. And it's because most people who were crucified were not buried in a tomb because they were regarded as cursed. So a burial in a tomb was thought of as an honor, right? So most people who were crucified, they would just get, like, their bodies would get thrown in a ditch and then the animals and the birds would come and eat the remains. And that was considered the fitting end to someone who's been cursed in this way. But Jesus, his body was not just thrown in a ditch. Uh, his body was brought to a tomb. You may have noticed that in the gospel accounts, there's all this attention given to how Jesus' body goes from the cross to the tomb. And, you know, you might wonder, of all the things that the gospel accounts could talk about, why do they bother with those details? Well, this is why. Because they knew they had to provide these details to set up the stage for the empty tomb, right? Because people would ask, well, how did Jesus' body go from the cross to, to this tomb? Well, and it provides very clear details for, for how that happened. So we say that Jesus was buried to emphasize that the context is ready for the empty tomb that's coming later. He suffered, was crucified, died, and was buried. Let me finish with one last point that helps to unpack the significance of this part of the creed. Jesus once said, this is Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So just in case there's any confusion here, when Jesus says Son of Man, he's talking about himself. So what he's saying here is, I have come to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus himself says the reason that he suffers and is crucified and died and is buried is so that 
he could provide a ransom. Now, what is a ransom? Well, in those days, many people were slaves. That was a normal way that society was structured. And if somebody was a slave, there were two ways that they could become free. One was if their master just said, okay, you can go free. And the other was if somebody else agreed to pay the master whatever the value of the slave was, and that payment was the ransom. The ransom. So, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that we are all in a kind of slavery. And his death is like the ransom payment that frees us from that slavery. Now, what are we in slavery to? Well, we're in slavery to a lot of things. Right? We're in slavery to sinful patterns of behavior. We're in slavery to the guilt that comes from those sinful patterns. We're in slavery to the fear of death that hangs over our entire lives. Um, to varying extents, we are in slavery to unjust powers like Pontius Pilate. Uh, we're in slavery to the unseen forces of evil, the devil, the demonic. And yet there is something about Jesus' suffering and death that has power to overcome all of those chains. Something about his suffering and death that has power to break them and lead us out of the dark dungeon of enslavement and out into the glorious light of freedom. Because the cross shows us God loves us. God bears our suffering and our sin. He is with us. He is merciful. He forgives. He's for us, not against us, and he will never leave us. And if we can see the cross, Jesus' suffering and death, through those eyes of faith, our chains start to break, and we come into the light. And this foolishness becomes real wisdom, and this weakness becomes real power. And we see things as they actually are. Let's pray. Lord, um, we thank you so much for taking on flesh, for identifying with us, for suffering, for carrying your cross, for dying so that we could be free. We thank you for paying our ransom. Lord, we pray that you would give us the eyes to see uh, everything that is revealed by the cross and how beautiful it is. And Lord, we pray that you would set us free from every chain that binds us and help us to step into your glorious light. In Jesus' name, amen.